welcome to another episode of the podcast formerly known as the 10th and L podcast brought to you by True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman. I'll be your host again today. If you're just now tuning in for the first time since late in 2021, hey, it's been a while and sorry that you haven't heard from us. Our original plan was to be back with you beginning in the spring semester, but because of how busy we've been uh, working through our church merger with Muldoon Road Baptist Church here in town and moving into our new building and renovating it and hosting mission teams and then moving into the building this fall, Uh, It hasn't been a good use of our attention or time to focus on the podcast like we would have liked to. I also want to let you know that we're looking for an updated name. Uh, Obviously, we don't meet at 10th and L anymore here in Anchorage. We now meet at 382 Muldoon Road. And boy, the 382 Muldoon Road podcast just does not roll off the tongue the way that 10th and L does. So we would love to hear from you, the listeners, on maybe a recommended name. Uh, or just an idea, a category we were considering True North Resources or uh, the True North Online Resource Podcast. Uh, None of that is terribly easy to say either. So uh, hit us, hit us with your ideas, with your best recommendations and suggestions, and we'll consider them. We will. We uh, may not necessarily pick yours, but we'll think about it. And we uh, we'll let you know if we do pick yours, we'll give you just the teeniest bit of credit <laughs> on one of our following episodes. The reason that we've kicked the podcast back off is we're going to be working through uh, starting today and the seven following Thursdays. You're going to be getting a new episode in your podcast feed every Thursday afternoon at lunchtime. And uh, those are going to walk you through the eight chapters of a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. This is our first book in book club. This is our first book club that we've ever done. Uh, We had the idea coming off of some of the reading time that our paid staff do every week in the office together as part of staff meeting on Tuesdays. We'd had a few folks who are retired or who work a non-traditional schedule communicate that they'd like the opportunity to join us for those conversations. And we thought, why not open up an additional time for folks who can't make it on a Tuesday? And so right now we're meeting in person every Monday and Tuesday at 10 a.m., And then this podcast that you're listening to is meant to function as sort of a catch-up or uh, even a supplemental opportunity for folks who are attending in person to get a little bit more discussion and thought about the content of the chapters. So we're going to jump right in today with chapter one of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The chapter title is The Problem of Emotionally Unhealthy Spirituality. And hopefully at this point, you have already listened to or read that chapter yourself. What this podcast will not do is regurgitate the content in such a way that it can replace the time that you would spend reading the chapter or listening to it if you're more of an audiobook person. Uh, What this is meant to do is to stir you up a little bit, to provide some personal application, and to ask some questions that hopefully you'll take the time to answer. Obviously, along the way, you'll get to hear some of my perspective. I'll tell a few stories about my experiences in the past and, and some that are currently going on that deal with emotional unhealth in my own life or the lives of people that I've worked with. Uh, I won't be sharing anybody's name but my own, and I did make the commitment to the folks who showed up this week for the in-person uh, book discussion that I would not use their names or share their specific circumstances. However, we've had two really robust hours of conversation this week, one on Monday and one on Tuesday, and I am going to share some of the examples and the thoughts and questions that were raised in that environment. So uh, we are about three and a half, four minutes into this thing. I'm hoping to shoot uh, for the 30-minute range because it's just me talking to you today, hoping in future weeks to be able to invite a guest along for the conversation as well. So jumping right into the chapter, I don't know about you, but uh, hearing the story of Pete and Jerry at their home 
uh, inviting John and his wife over, John far and away overstaying his welcome, really stressing Pete out, but Pete felt that he was obligated to continue to entertain John and pay attention or at least act like he was. Meanwhile, Jerry is sort of losing her mind at the table until finally they find out that one of their daughters is in a really dangerous situation. Um, I've never had a personal encounter with something like that. I can't think of an example or a time where anybody in my family or myself was put in danger because of being overextended in ministry, but I can think of lots of examples of ministers, both my family of origin, uh, my current family now with my wife, Andy, uh, our previous ministry contexts, first in South Texas, before that, when we were in college, after we were in South Texas, we were in Kentucky for a while. I think it's very common for ministers and missionaries to put themselves in positions where they are way out over their skis. They're out of balance. They are not really thinking. They don't even know if they're allowed to think or have an opinion because they're trying to do the Lord's work. In both of our book discussions this week, uh, the idea of some of the popular scripture verses from the New Testament that deal with self-sacrifice came up in those discussions. We talked about how we hear people talk a lot about pouring themselves out. Uh, We hear people talk about dying to themselves, being a living sacrifice. I think sometimes instead of trying to understand what those phrases mean in their context and instead of trying to find out what those original original authors intended by those phrases, we attach a cultural idea to those things and then we sort of just plaster those on ourselves and other people as good reasons to not take your own spiritual pulse, as good reasons to not be aware of your own internal emotional state. In fact, many of us in our book discussions, and certainly this is true for me personally, have had experiences in the past where churches, whether explicitly or implicitly, whether they've come right out and said it or it's just sort of been in the culture of the church, have actually looked down on emotions, have considered emotions to be less uh, trustworthy, reliable, or true than maybe an intellectual decision, an idea, an impression, a concept, or even a dream. And so that was interesting that we all have that common experience, yet of the two sessions, which made up total about 20 people, none of us grew up at the same church. So we're talking about at least 20 different local church environments in which it was normal and even typical for people to be out of balance and to use scripture verses out of context to justify that lifestyle and to stay out of balance. Moving on from there, uh, we discussed a little bit about Pete Scazzaro's own upbringing. There were a few people who related to his specific story. One person in particular said that they felt that they saw their own mom and dad written out on the page. The dad who was the workaholic, gone from the home all of the time, kind of trying to love the family by providing finances for them, but really having almost no relationship with the kids or the wife. And then the stay-at-home mom who's trapped and upset and depressed and ultimately winds up losing her connection to her husband because he's not involved with the family at home. Um, Moving on from there, we found it to be uh, really interesting to discuss how Pete found Christ and then what his initial uh, growing period was like for him in his life, how he uh, sort of moved on from that into different forms of discipleship and, and how those discipleship models for him were oftentimes reactions to feeling out of balance or maybe becoming aware that something was wrong at the church he was a part of, or initially, um, or I should say eventually, even the church that he was leading became a place where uh, he felt like something was up, he couldn't identify exactly what, and 
maybe his reaction was to just push more toward one ministry of the church to emphasize that instead of taking a step back and self-evaluating. So for instance, in the book, he lists things like Bible study. If something's wrong at church and people are not connecting, they just need more Bible. Or maybe what they need is more community. Or maybe what they need is really a greater connection to the Spirit in prayer. Or really what they need is they need to know how to confront demonic powers and apply Scripture and pray in Jesus' authority. Or maybe it's worship. Maybe if people have a better emotional experience or they feel that they can connect better with God through music or through the environment in which the music is sung, maybe for them that would be the thing that would get them over the hump or past the roadblock in their life. And he goes on and on and on, and finally it seems that he eventually realizes that the progress that he's been looking for, the thing that he keeps waiting to happen, right, what we would call spiritual maturity, that it's linked not so much to what these people are doing, but it's linked more so to their own emotional awareness of themselves, or he would argue the lack of that emotional awareness. It's at this point in the chapter that Pete moves us to the physical model of an iceberg, Uh, And one of the interesting discussions that we had at uh, the second of the two book club meetings in person, the Tuesday morning um, hour that we spent together, was was to answer the question, if we are like an iceberg and only about 10% of who we really are lies above the surface, where we and other people can sense that person, what brings the other 90% to the surface? Can we think of environments, situations, circumstances that push us in a way where the truth of that iceberg is exposed. And so I shared for the group that uh, I myself, because of my personality, I'm, uh, if you're familiar with the Enneagram personality test, I'm an Enneagram 8, very aggressive. I'm a challenger. I sort of view life as a fight to win, as a, a mountain to climb. And so many times I process emotions, any emotion, as anger. I eventually convert whatever it is I'm feeling into anger. So for instance, um, I might sit at a funeral for a loved one who died of old age. Nobody, There was no murder, no foul play. They lived a great life. They loved people well. And I might mourn them in the moment, but then I have this sort of latent, under-the-surface anger that begins to bubble and boil in me, and I don't know, I don't know where it comes from. For much of my life, it's been an embarrassment to me. I've tried to ignore it or deny it if other people think that they can pick up on it along the way. And so what I've learned is there's this anger that's on the surface for me sometimes. If I become angry at traffic or my daughter or my wife or my circumstances, I have to learn to have self-control over that. And I've spent a lot of my adult life trying to gain self-control over my actions and my attitudes. But then in the iceberg, in that lower 90% that not everybody can see, there's this other more primal latent anger for me. And it's the anger that I end up using to interpret the world. It's the anger that I use to motivate myself, to drive myself out of the bed in the morning and back into bed at night. And becoming emotionally healthy for me has been a journey of starting to recognize that that's true. That even if my behavior is good, even if I feel like I'm telling my face to be happy and I'm smiling at the right times, there is often an ability on the part of people who are more emotionally sensitive than I am to pick up on that deep-seated anger, and usually people can feel it before I even know that it's becoming exposed. So that's a reality that I've had to face, and then I've had to look around me and go, what are the situations and circumstances that push me so hard that some of that lower 90% begins to show itself? Some of that anger, some of that shame, some of that deep fear that I have that if people knew the real me, they would reject me, they wouldn't like me, they might even hate me. Once I can start to identify that I have a tendency along those lines, I find myself in situations where I go, okay, this is probably going to be hard. Um, For me, mid-size social gatherings are just not my sweet spot. Birthday parties, surprise parties, 
uh, Halloween parties, um, New Year's parties, uh, even a life group is a challenging environment for me. I'm good one-on-one. I feel like I do fine with a few hundred people listening to me give a monologue from the stage as a sermon, but I struggle to keep the ball moving and to keep up with the pace of a small group setting. Well, for years and years, I would just avoid those and I would justify it away with stupid things like, well, I'm a pastor and I can never go to a life group because nobody will treat me like a person, but I had never asked anybody to do that. I wasn't trying. I wasn't working on it. That changed when we came here to Alaska. Sometimes I would retreat and I would sort of work myself up enough that I felt bad physically, or I would say, well, I'm too tired. Or, and so what I found myself doing was dodging a totally normal social situation because I was aware enough of myself to know that I wasn't going to have a good time and it was going to be hard, but I wasn't aware enough of myself to come up with a solution to that problem. I could identify it was there. I had a word for it. I could feel it, but it took reading through a book like this and a lot of other work that I've done in my life in the last couple of years and that God has done in my life for many, many years, even before I asked him to, to help me begin to realize why I felt the way that I did and what I could actually do about it. So for me, something that keeps uh, the or that brings the the bottom 90% of the iceberg to the surface is small social settings. It's dinner out with friends. It's a, it's a party. I know I sound like the lamest guy ever, and you're probably ripping up your invitation that you were going to send me to whatever it is that you were going to invite me to do. Uh, give me the chance to get it right, please. I am working on this, but for years of my life, it's been hard. Uh, and I just didn't know what to do. So that was kind of my 90% versus 10. Maybe you can relate to that. You might ask yourself, what's a setting where that 90% that's under the surface starts to become revealed? And what can I do when it starts to show itself? Do I have the tools or not? Maybe you'll gain the tools from working your way through this book. Maybe God will do it in a different way. Uh, But can I gain the tools to be able to navigate that reality about myself? We move from there into uh, one of the harder parts of the book for me to read as a pastor, in which Pete Scazzaro's wife, Jerry, tells him, and uh, I think I can quote it. She says, by the the way, the church you pastor, I quit. Your leadership is not worth following. Holy cow, that hurts. But for Pete, it's the beginning of change because he begins to realize that he had become so emotionally unhealthy that he couldn't do the ministry he was called to do. He knew how to fake it. He could produce a ministry product, but he couldn't connect with people or himself in a way that would actually lead to transformation. And to him, that was the beginning of change. He had to hit that wall. Uh, For many of us, those walls will look different. Probably of, of all the people involved in this podcast, I'm the only one who works professionally as a pastor. You, the listener, likely do not do that. And so maybe for you, that shows up in the context of a relationship with a family member, your spouse, hitting a wall at work. But God will oftentimes use pain to get our attention. And probably as we work through this book, We're going to be working through a little bit of our own pain that we carry that we're already aware of, as well as we'll see some things come to the surface that we might not have thought about in a very long time. The next portion of the book deals with uh, sort of the dimensions of a human person. Pete lays out five of those. Uh, We found that to be helpful, but really clear enough and direct enough that there wasn't a lot of discussion about that in any of the um, in-person discussions that we had. And then we get to the top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, and this is really the meat of the remainder of the chapter. As Pete lays out the short list on page 22, if you're in the paperback version like I am, of what those 10 symptoms are, and then he works through each of them one by one in a way that I found to be so helpful (laughs) that even though before we looked at these 10, I would have said, "Mm, maybe I practice four or five of these. By the time we got to the end of the list, I could think of a good example from my own life for all 10. And that seemed to be the consensus in our in-person study as well. I really appreciated how open everybody was and how willing they were to each pick just a couple that really stick out to them 
but to generally agree, all of us have practiced all 10 of these in our past. So in the interest for you, the listener, of connecting with some of that a little bit, I'm going to give you some examples from my own life. And I would just ask you to think through these 10 on your own. If you haven't already, maybe just circle two of them and you might take these with you across the next week into your quiet time with God, into your devotion time, your silence and solitude, your your morning Bible reading and say to God, God, I think I see these things in my life. Do you agree? And can you bring me bring to mind maybe not just an example, but a pattern of lifestyle that, that reflects this? So to that end, um, like I told you, what I want to tell you about mine, uh, looking at number three, which Pete calls dying to the wrong things, choosing to die to the wrong things. Uh, that's a big time pattern for me in my life. As long as I've been uh, an adult on my own, I find myself in situations that are really stressful. So I'll give you an example. Uh, at the time of this recording, we are about five days away from a business discussion. And here at the church, we do these a month in advance of business, excuse me, in advance of business meetings so that we can get through the meeting a little bit faster and so that people have a chance to ask and answer questions and then go home and consider the answers that they were given from the elders and from other leaders in the church. And it's a, it's a high pressure week for me. I, I have to get a lot of uh, concepts that have been in my head that we've been discussing in elder meetings. I've got to get them down on paper in a way that's clear where a person who has no prior knowledge can follow the argument, the reasoning, and reach the same conclusion as best as possible that we did, or at least understand how we did, even if they disagree, which is totally fine. So I have a lot of writing to do. I've got formatting that goes with that. I get nervous that I'm going to misspeak. I'm going to go too fast. We're going to take too long. I try to consider everybody who's a member of the church. I want people who have lots of questions to go home satisfied. I want people who have no questions to go home without feeling like ripping their eyeballs out of their head because of how long the meeting went. So for me, if I have that stress on my shoulders, if I'm bearing that weight in my life, um, I usually don't take the time to address where that stress is coming from. I don't ask myself healthy questions like, why am I afraid of this meeting? What do I think will happen if I do a bad job of communicating? What is it about this meeting that has so much control over my future, or at least that I perceive has control over my future? Am I worried that the church will close if the meeting goes poorly? Am I worried that I'll be fired? Is there some area where maybe I should have been better prepared in the past and I'm borrowing a negative experience that I've had previously and projecting it into my future? I don't do that homework, even though that would be very fruitful and helpful for me to do. What I do is I pick something that I can control and I become legalistic about it. So I take all that nervous energy that's connected to something like a business discussion and I look around my life and I go, yeah, you know, my pants aren't fitting the way that they used to. I'm in my early to mid thirties now. I, I think I'm just going to be a vegetarian and I'll just make an arbitrary off the cuff sweeping generalization like that in my life. I'll tell my wife, uh, Hey, I'm only eating lettuce now. And she'll be like, what? What are you talking about? Why? You're not a vegetarian. You've never done anything like this. And I'll be like, just trust me. It's, it's what God wants me to do. And usually I don't say it that way, but, but I'll say something like, it's a decision I've made. I want to do it, whatever. I channel that nervous energy into something I can control. And then I push myself to do the standard that I set to fulfill the obligation that I put on myself by trying to be a vegetarian or not eat pizza or do more water every day or work out four days a week instead of just two or write off Oreos for good. Now, listener, here's how I know that that's legalism and it's dying to the wrong things. Without fail, as soon as I get through the thing that I'm actually nervous about, whether it be a confrontational conversation with an elder or a church member or maybe a deacon or a staff member, or whether it's a business discussion like it is this week, if I were to give in and decide no more pizza for 2022, I could make a statement like that. I could fight as hard as I want to. But inevitably, the day after the stressful thing is behind me, whether it be the business discussion or a hard conversation with another person or whatever, 
I am right back on pizza and Oreos. Inevitably, right away, I lose the conviction because the thing that's been making me nervous is gone. And so I find myself stockpiling and hiding that anxiety in things that I can control instead of having the maturity to look around me and go, why am I reacting like this? People have meetings every day of the year all over the world, and most of them don't have to go on a fast in order to navigate that meeting. So there's probably some room for me to grow. Um, Another one that we heard a lot about today was living without limits in our Tuesday morning discussion. Uh, We all could think of pastors and ministry leaders whom we've known who live an unlimited life. They lean on and almost require God to make them crash in order for them to understand uh, that they need to slow down. They don't know how to take a day off. There's nothing like a Sabbath in their life. They can't imagine silence and solitude. They really only pray as needs arise. They sort of throw their prayers out like incantations or charms to God. Meanwhile, they never take their foot off the gas or slow down long enough for God to do anything for them. They say, God, please help me. And then they just rush in and do everything they can on their own. Now, certainly it's good to have a high degree of responsibility, but when we live without limits, what we do is we, we take the responsibility that we should bear for ourselves and we put it on other people or we place it on other circumstances. We require something outside of ourselves to force us to stop. And if you don't know that already, uh, when you force something else to take the responsibility for stopping you, that's a very painful process. A wall will stop your car. It would be better if your car or you in the driver's seat took responsibility and pressed the brake that you've been provided with and you slowed the car to a safe speed. Or you can put that responsibility on the wall and the wall will also stop the car, but it will do it in a way that's damaging to you and could even be deadly. Oftentimes in our lives as believers, we live without limits in Jesus' name. We tell ourselves, I don't need sleep. I can do more caffeine. I don't need rest. I need more Bible study. I don't need to take a step away from life group leadership or from the church, though I've been hurt or I'm dried up or I'm going through something challenging. Instead, I'm going to push myself further in. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to sign up for more things. And we don't end up serving ourselves or really the people around us. Now, God is good and gracious, and he will use those efforts. Believe me, he will not waste your time or his own time. But the opportunity that we have to go with him instead of forcing him to clean up our mess every single time we try to help, that's a valuable opportunity. And the experience that we'll have with him will be much more like heaven on earth than gritting our teeth through a hell on earth experience and requiring or or waiting on God to do something redemptive with it. It's far better to work with God than to work against him. He can use both, but I know from the scriptures he would prefer that we work in conjunction and cooperation. I want to wrap up our time with, together uh, this morning or afternoon, whenever it is that you're listening. It's afternoon where I am today. Um, I want to wrap it up by running through uh, just a couple parts of, I think it's number seven. You can probably hear me turning my pages in the background. Uh, I left my book at home today. So I printed off the first chapter, which is available at emotionallyhealthyspirituality.com. They make it available to you. So even if you haven't jumped into the book yet, you can get the first chapter, work your way through it and see if maybe something sticks out to you that intrigues you enough for you to jump in. Okay, yeah, so spiritualizing away conflict, number seven of the 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Um, There is a place on page 32, I think. I think it's the next page from where I am. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, so here is a way to sort of get the the pressure um, on the culture of an organization. If you don't know, every group of people has a culture. A culture is essentially the unspoken rules and values of that organization. Oftentimes, businesses try to capture a culture in a mantra or a saying, uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. But you can know, you usually tell within two or three rounds, especially at a church, if you visit on a Sunday, two or three Sundays is going to show you what are these people about? What do they care about? What do they preach about? What do they sing about? Where does their money go? How do they spend their time? 
Um, and so within the culture of an organization like a church, oftentimes spiritualizing away conflict is not something that just plagues one individual, but it can really define the culture of the whole congregation. I'm going to read through Pete's list here, and I'll go slowly, and you just ask yourself if you can relate to having ever been a part of a church or a small group or even a parachurch ministry, maybe a missions organization, where these kinds of things were normal in the face of conflict. The first is to say one thing to people's faces, but to say something different behind their backs. Have you ever been a part of an organization where that was normal or even expected? Number two, to make promises that we have no intention of keeping. Have you ever sat in an organizational meeting where people share great big dreams and get excited about opportunities and speak as if the whole group is going to move forward toward one goal and then you get away from the meeting and nobody ever talks about it again and no one ever follows up and especially if it's your dream or your project, you end up feeling very isolated uh, and disrespected by that. Have you ever been a part of an organization where blame was normal, where it wasn't normal to take responsibility, but it was normal to try to prove that what went wrong was someone else's fault? Attacking people directly or the opposite of attack, giving people the silent treatment. Maybe this is true in your family of origin. Maybe you had a parent or a sibling or even a grandparent, maybe a coworker or a roommate or your spouse now who under enough pressure and with enough stress can just shut down and shut you out. Sarcasm is one that certainly I have to be careful not to wield uh, in, a, in a way that's painful or hurtful. I think sarcasm can be really funny among friends, especially if they're careful and they know each other well. But that can train us to whip that sarcasm out when our backs are against the wall, when we're offended, angry, worried, nervous, when we feel defensive. Number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, giving in because we're afraid of not being liked. Maybe this is a cult of personality setting in a church where everybody just does what the pastor says because if the pastor likes you is really the only metric for whether or not you fit in and maybe even whether or not you think you're a Christian. And so even though you have to compromise your morals or at the very least your instincts, you're willing to do that because you're scared to death of what would happen if you did disagree and did not give in. Leaking anger by sending an email containing a not-so-subtle criticism. I would include text messaging uh, in this area, uh, subtweeting a Facebook post that doesn't tag anybody but speaks to a very specific situation. Uh, my wife and I have been a part of at least one other church in the past where that was specifically normal, where Facebook was used as a venting platform to take passive-aggressive swipes at other people. Telling only half the truth because we can't bear to hurt a friend's feelings. This is a little bit like giving in because we're afraid of not being liked, but it's the other side of the same coin. Instead of bending to someone else's will, we choose not to give other people the opportunity to play with a full deck by pulling punches and not telling them the truth. Three more. Saying yes when we mean no. Uh, you could also call that lying. Avoiding and withdrawing and cutting people off. So just getting away from the person, instead of solving the conflict, you attach the conflict to the person who you think started it or who is representing the conflict, and you just cut them out of your life for good. Because you can't stand the fight. You choose not to engage with the person. And then finally, finding an outside person with whom we can share in order to try to ease our anxiety. Now, Pete says this. I think it's a good quote. He says, Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. Jesus' life was filled with conflict. He was in regular conflict with the religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples, even his own family. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. He refused to spiritualize conflict avoidance. And some of you out there listening are already having anxiety at the idea that you would rock the boat with your family, that you would rock the boat maybe at work, that you would rock the boat in your social setting or your life group. Again, Pete doesn't need us to get together and solve these problems right away. The point of this exercise is to simply identify if there is a pattern in play that is not healthy. 
Now, Pete wraps the chapter up uh, with a prayer. I think this prayer is really cool, so I'm going to pray it right now. I'm going to invite you to just join me if you want, or you can just listen, uh, follow along in your book if you have it. But he says this. He says, God, when I consider this chapter, the only thing that I can say is, quote, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you that I stand before you in the righteousness of Jesus in his perfect record and performance and not my own. I ask that you would not simply heal the symptoms of what is not right in my life, but that you would surgically remove all that is in me that does not belong to you. As I think about what I have read, Lord, pour light over the things that are hidden, and may I see clearly as you hold me tenderly. In Jesus' name, amen. The opening line of that prayer includes what's called the Jesus Prayer. The Jesus Prayer comes to us by way of the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, and it's these words, Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes they say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I find this prayer to be very helpful and effective for me when I feel stuck, when I feel shame, when I'm embarrassed. I'm on a personal journey right now of unpacking and digging up some things from my past that have birthed patterns of behavior that I'm not proud of, that I want to get rid of. And oftentimes when I confront something that's true about myself that I don't like, that I didn't do, somebody else did to me, someone else planted the seed of this pattern. So it's hard in some ways to take responsibility, not so much for the action, but for the root of the action. When I'm at a loss with what to do, confronted with something about myself that I don't like, that is a prayer that I will pray. And I would encourage you to do that too. If you're working through this book with us, we're going to move into chapter two next week and take a look at um, the first of seven categories of spiritual unhealth. And Pete's going to give us some tools to try to navigate how to fix some of those things or at least begin the process to come unstuck and then submit ourselves to the Lord, trusting that he will do the work. Between now and then, I would encourage you as you pray, whether it be daily, multiple times a day, or maybe just once between now and next week, as you confront things within your life, as things are as come, things from this chapter come to mind, these 10 categories of spiritual unhealth, and you think, man, I've, I've got all 10. Am I so broken and messed up that I can't be healed? I think the starting point would be that very simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So listener, I hope this was an encouragement to you, and uh, I think it's a pretty good example of what we'll be doing each chapter. I'll try to mix in some quotes, some anecdotes, a few uh, of the kind of highlights that we bring from our in-person discussion. And hopefully beginning next week, I'll be with you with a guest each week who'll be able to share their own perspective and some of their stories. So between now and then, you can always contact us here at uh, our website. You can use, first of all, the email, info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. If you go just to the website, truenorthalaska.com, there's an info page there where you can let us know that you're listening. And if you have any questions, if you're new to the podcast, you can subscribe. We don't need you to. We're never going to monetize this. We'll never sell ads. So we don't really need you to subscribe, but it might make it easier for you to find next week's episode. It'll auto-populate if that's something that you're looking out for. Uh, If we can be of any help to you, or uh, if you need ministry, prayer by an elder, anything like that, reach out to us. Let us know. We're happy to walk through this book, uh, but we'd love to to be a part of your faith journey in any other way that would be appropriate. So until next week, uh, I'm Philip. It's been great spending time with you guys. Hope it's been worth your time, and I will talk to you very soon. Take care.